And let me ask you, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6. As we continue our study through the gospel according to Mark, this morning we will look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. A lesson for the disciples then that although Jesus' ministry had reached a significant high point of a display of his power and a display of his authority and then even in two people trusting him regardless of or in the midst of a hopeless situation, a lesson that the disciples needed to learn that it would not always be easy in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6 this morning. Please follow along as I read. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach now the holy ground of your word, we pray that you would help us. Help us to see the reality of who Jesus is. Help us to see the reality of the way that mankind in his unbelief responds to Jesus. The Reality that mankind is trapped in unbelief unless freed by you from that very condition. The idea that those whom you have freed from our unbelief will face the unbelief of our community, our relatives, and sometimes even our own household. And yet, just as Jesus was not deterred in his mission by unbelief, we pray that you would help us not be discouraged in our mission by the unbelief of others. We ask, O God, that as we approach this passage that you would help us to search our own hearts. First of all, to see if there is any unbelief yet remaining in us. If we are truly trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. But I ask, Lord, that you would not allow us to beat ourselves up. That we would not try to dissect the genuineness of our faith in a way that would lead us to despair but that we would simply come to ask ourselves, do I believe what this man has said to me as he declares his very own gospel that he sealed with his life? And we pray, Lord, that as we understand that only you can reveal the truth of the gospel to us, we pray that perhaps if someone is here and yet not in a position of belief in Jesus, that you would grant them that, that you would extend to them your mercy. And we pray, O God, for those of us who are here and do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this passage would be instructive and helpful for us as we are often just as astonished as we often marvel at the unbelief of others just like Jesus did. I pray that it would not discourage us, that it would not deter us from the mission, but you would help us to be faithful to make disciples regardless of what we encounter from others. Lord, most of all, we ask for humble hearts that would receive the nourishing food of your word this morning. We believe what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think for a moment with me though only for a moment, about what you believe the worst sin that could ever be committed is. 
I don't want you to think about it for very long because you understand, even as you read various headlines, that that very thought can lead you to a sickness in the pit of your stomach pretty quickly. I also don't want to give you a list of heinous sins that mankind has committed throughout history and continues to commit today and will continue to commit until the Lord Jesus returns because, again, I don't want to make you sick to your stomach. But I wonder if you're right. I wonder if the worst sin that has now entered your mind as you think about what that might be, I wonder if you're actually right. And you might say, well, how would you know, Mr. Know-it-all, if I'm right? You don't even know what I'm thinking. I would say that I would know whether or not you're right the same way that I would know whether or not I'm right. Because Jesus tells us. Jesus, as he explains to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a passage very familiar to you, at least the first verse that I will quote, John 3.16, then goes on to continue to explain what the worst sin that mankind can commit is. John 3.16 to 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You ready for it? Here it is. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. That chapter goes on to continue to explain the necessity of that and God nails the hammer or rather uh, hammers the nail one more time at the end of it. John 3, 35 to 36 says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. We often, I think, think about the wrath of God in regards to mankind as something that is coming in the future, right? You think of hell and that being a place of the the unending wrath of God being poured out upon the sins of mankind, those who refuse to repent of their sin and those who refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're right, or at least partly. The wrath of God certainly will rest on those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for all eternity, but the reality is the Bible says that the wrath of God rests on them even right now. Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And then John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Nothing can remain on you unless it is already on you, right? What is the worst sin that mankind can commit? It is unbelief as it is directed toward the Messiah Jesus Christ. As you think about all the heinous sins that you thought of, I'm guessing you probably thought of other people's sins and not your own sins. But take a moment to think about the worst sins that you've ever committed. And then remember that Jesus paid it all. The reality is that all of those sins can be traced back to the root of unbelief. And all of those sins upon the moment of confession can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. But if a person dies in their unbelief, they will remain in the wrath of God forever. As we encounter then this shocking scene of Jesus, the hometown hero, coming back to his very own hometown, we realize that very same reality. 
that unbelief in regards to Jesus Christ is the worst sin that anyone can ever commit. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6 shows us something of this unbelief that helps us to understand, of course, the unbelief of the townsfolk, of Jesus' friends and relatives, of the people that he grew up around, but it also helps us to understand then the unbelief of our friends and relatives and of the people that we interact with on a regular basis. So what I want to do this morning then is to look at this passage in a way that helps us to understand or sort of dissect the unbelief of the people in Nazareth that will then help us to zoom out and look around us and to understand and or dissect the unbelief of the people around us as well. Now certainly we couldn't uh, say everything that there is to say about unbelief, but we'll try to say what is most significant within these six verses regarding unbelief. So first of all, as we understand the unbelief and Jesus's own amazement at the unbelief of the Nazarenes, we learn our first point to understand their unbelief, our, our first discovery as we dissect the unbelief of the people in Nazareth, and it's this. The people's unbelief was aimed at Jesus' teaching. The people's unbelief was aimed at Jesus' teaching. Verses one and two. He went away from there. We know where there is because we were just there last week. He was at Jairus' house where he healed his daughter who was not sick anymore, but in fact had died. And Jesus grabbed her by the hand and told her to get up. And she did. And then Jesus said, give her some food to demonstrate that it was not a spirit that he raised, but a body that he had raised, a little 12-year-old girl. And why had he done that? Because her father believed. And now... Jesus leaves Jairus' house on an intentional mission to go to his hometown, the hometown of Nazareth. Mark doesn't say it here, but we know that he was already been called, even in Mark's gospel, Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but his family fled there after Herod determined to kill all the boys two years and under. And then his family came back and settled into Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. So he goes home now. He goes from Jairus' house and he comes to his hometown and his disciples followed him. It was a hometown that was located some 25 miles or so southwest of Capernaum where most likely Jesus was conducting his ministry even in Jairus' home. The place where he launched his boat initially to go to the other side of the lake to heal the demoniac and then came back to enter into that, uh, that wonderful display of his power and authority, but the key there being not so much, though significantly or surely, the power of Jesus, but the necessity of responding to Jesus by faith. So he comes home to this little town, and uh, biblical archaeologists estimate that there were probably about 500 or so people in this little town, how they know that, I have no idea. But someone paid them money to estimate that. We'll probably get to heaven and Jesus will go, hey guys, there was like a thousand people in that town. You totally blew it. That's just what happens as we guess about what happens to, uh, what has happened in history. And it's yet a reminder to us that as we study the Bible, it's important that we understand history, but it's not most important you can have no idea where Nazareth is and still get the point of this passage. That's for free. That was a little side note. wasn't in my notes there. So he goes home to his little tiny town and his disciples follow him. Uh, perhaps this was the first or maybe even the second visit to the town of Nazareth. Luke records a visit in Luke chapter four. That's very similar to this visit and scholars are divided on whether it is this visit or whether this visit happened after that visit. We don't really know, but that doesn't really matter to what we're studying here. He goes home, that's the point. 
And verse two tells us that he had gone home and it was the Sabbath that had approached. Perhaps he went home the day before the Sabbath or a few days before the Sabbath, but he goes home and he's called on to be the teacher on that particular Sabbath day in his home synagogue. And so he goes to the Sabbath or he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, a practice that was normal, especially if there were a traveling teacher. Jesus by this time had already demonstrated that he was a teacher, that he was a a rabbi, though it wasn't a traditional rabbi, but he had already had followers with him. And Mark lets us know that those followers went with him. And so they asked him to be the one who would teach on that particular Sabbath in the synagogue. And so he did. And notice what Mark emphasizes for us here. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. And we'll stop there for now. They responded to the teaching of Jesus in that particular synagogue the very same way the synagogue at Capernaum responded to Jesus' teaching. You could look back in chapter one and see that this was the very same word that was used to describe the people's, the people's response to Jesus. Astonishment. It's a word that can mean to be struck out of your mind, though other, other grammarians say that's really not a right way to translate this, but you know what it's like to be astonished. It's something that makes you go, wow. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, it depends. Sometimes you could be astonished in a way that leads you to joy. You could be astonished in a way that leads you to excitement. Or as we were about to see here, you could be astonished in a way that leads you to unbelief. But primarily, what was it that they were astonished by? What would you be astonished by if Jesus came to teach on a Sunday. This was a Saturday, but you had heard all the wonderful things that he had done. You had seen perhaps people that he had healed. You had heard the stories about he had just come from raising a dead girl. Pretty astonishing, right? But Mark wants us to understand just as Jesus declared at the very beginning of his ministry that he came primarily not to heal not to work miracles, those things that are visibly astonishing, but he came primarily to teach. And it's his teaching that Mark highlights for us, just as he has done, it's his teaching that the people are astonished by. They're struck by it. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it would be helpful to to think then about that little bitty tiny hometown. You know what it's like in a small town, don't you? Everybody knows everybody. You know, when you grow up in a small town and then you become an adult, nobody sees you as an adult. They see you as so-and-so's kid. Which is why so many of us young people move away from our family so that we stop being so-and-so's kid. And so you imagine the context here, right? This hometown boy. There were ladies in the congregation that day who probably helped to change Jesus' diaper. And I'm not even saying that to be funny. It's true. There were people that watched Jesus first learn how to swing a hammer. There were people who watched him stumble around as Mary and Joseph taught him how to walk. He was normal to them. He was average to them. And now he comes And do you remember what the people were most astonished by in the very first synagogue teaching? They were astonished by the authority with which he taught. They said to themselves, nobody teaches like this. The scribes don't teach like this. The Pharisees don't teach like this. Do you remember what Jesus was teaching? His fundamental message was, the time had come. The kingdom of God was at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That was Jesus' teaching. That teaching is an astonishing teaching. These people would have thought, who are you? We know the house that you grew up in. And now you're claiming to be some kind of king? 
We know who the king is. Caesar is the king. Who are you? You see, the people's unbelief was aimed not so much at what Jesus did, but their unbelief was aimed exactly and precisely at what Jesus was saying. So what's the lesson in that for us? I think you're already there. Unbelief today is aimed primarily where? At Jesus' teaching. Now, sure, some people say, no, he never existed. But the reality is, if we know anything from history, then we can prove unquestionably that Jesus did exist. If you believe anything from history, you cannot disbelieve that Jesus existed. There's too much evidence to prove that he did. So then what do you have to do? Well, then you have to explain away his existence. He was just another teacher. And some people will even go so far as to say, well, I like his teaching, or he was a good teacher, but I just don't know about him. I I think he could just kind of, I'll just add him into the other things that I think, the other, perhaps even gods, or the uh, the other people that I look up to in a spiritual sense. Why do they do that? Because if you really know and take seriously the teaching of Jesus, then you understand that you can have no other gods except him. That he is exclusive in his claims. There is only one way to God, and it's through him. That there is only one person who leads you to the Father. It's him. And so what people stumble over, what people, uh, where their unbelief most directly rests is not necessarily the existence of Jesus or even the miracles of Jesus. Everybody wants a miracle, right? But unbelief rests primarily in the teachings of Jesus. And so what is the church to do? Compromise on the teachings of Jesus? Of course not. The church is to endure that unbelief and continue to proclaim the teachings of Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus is teaching his disciples here before he then goes and sends them out in the passage that we'll study next week. He's training them. He's teaching them. And he's training us. He's teaching us. He's reminding us of what you know to be true. You know people who don't believe in Jesus. You know people who by all intents and purposes, as as far as all the evidence that you can see, you know people who really should believe in Jesus. Perhaps they grew up with the same teaching you grew up with. Perhaps they can see the change that Jesus made in your life. And yet for whatever reason, they just won't believe in Jesus. Jesus is teaching us that regardless of whether people believe or not, a disciple must remain not only committed to the teaching of Jesus, but committed to teaching the teachings of Jesus. And how do we summarize that teaching of Jesus? By calling it the gospel. So we come to understand then that as the unbelief of the people was directed specifically at the gospel, and yet it didn't deter Jesus the unbelief around us will also be directed specifically at the gospel. In fact, that's the most dangerous form of unbelief. You can believe everything else the Bible teaches, but if you don't believe the gospel, you will die in your sins, you will die in your unbelief, and you will go to hell where you endure the wrath of God forever. And so what does the church do? We lift high the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that can save the sinner. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message worth giving your lives entirely to, even if it means total rejection. So we learn, first of all, that the people's unbelief was aimed at Jesus' teaching, and we also learn that the very same thing is true today. And then secondly, as we continue to dissect this unbelief, we learn that the people's unbelief was rooted in their familiarity with Jesus. 
The people's unbelief was rooted in their familiarity with Jesus. And this is where I was already kind of touching on a little bit. They begin to ask themselves questions in their astonishment. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? You notice they're questioning the origin of his teaching. And then they question his own origin. Is not this the carpenter? Isn't this the guy that builds and repairs things around town? And we think of carpenters as strictly woodworkers. In those days, carpenters would work with wood, stone, and metal. It was a kind of a generic term for one who could build and fix things. You could imagine in a small town, you know what it's like in a small town, how important it is for someone who can do that kind of a thing. They didn't have YouTube back then, believe it or not. Now we can fix anything with YouTube and sometimes get ourselves in trouble as well. And then we have to call Jerry to fix it for us because we messed it up totally. But Jesus played a significant and important role. And it's not necessarily that the Jewish people looked down on labor workers. They knew the honor and the dignity that came with working with your hands. But it's as if they're saying, we know this guy. And yet he teaches us as if he's come from God. They continue with their questions. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Now there's speculation and debate based on what they meant by calling Jesus the son of Mary. Some say, well, it's, it's sure proof that Joseph was already dead by now, and that's most likely true. Others say it's a derogatory way because it would have never been proper for Jews to refer to someone as the son of their mother, even if their father was dead. They should have called him the son of Joseph, even if Joseph had long been dead. So it's, it's probable that they're sort of jabbing at him. And others say this is likely a reminder to the community and to the reader about the virgin birth, but in a way that would be sort of a scandal within the community. The story likely spread, hey, did you hear Mary got pregnant? Yeah, I heard it was before they even got married. I heard it's not even Joseph's baby. And so the rumors went, and some of those rumors were meant, intended to be a direct shot at Jesus. So maybe they meant this in an offensive way. I tend to think that they did because Mark later tells us they were offended at him and they did not believe in him. So I think that they did mean it that way. But the point here is that they're saying, we know this guy. We know his brothers. And furthermore, we not only know his brothers, they say, and are not his sisters here with us? His sisters are still living in town. Perhaps married at that point. Perhaps running their own family. They're saying, we know this guy. We grew up with him. We've seen him go from a little bitty baby to now a full-grown man. You know the phrase, don't you? Familiarity breeds contempt. You can be so used to someone or something that you begin to be indifferent toward them. And then sometimes that indifference leads not just to indifference, but to despising them. You think about a little town where they thought this guy's just one of us and now all of a sudden this guy has been traveling throughout northern Israel has been teaching he's got some followers with him crowds swarm him and mob him he heals people he casts out demons and now he's going to come back here and tell us about the kingdom of God he's going to tell us that we need to repent how dare he that's the mindset that they had Their unbelief then, we we come to understand, was rooted in their familiarity. They just wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe that someone who had come from God could be born the way he was born, could grow up the way he grew up. They didn't realize that God works in ordinary means. That the supernatural is supernatural for a reason, because it's not natural that the miraculous is not called the normal for a reason because it's miraculous. 
And so what they wanted from their Messiah was this supernatural, miraculous conqueror who came riding in and it was clear to all, especially Rome, that they were about to go down. But what they got was a little baby born in a manger. What they got was a child who grew up in perfect obedience to the law. What they got was a preacher who told them that the time had come and that they had better repent and believe the message that he had got, that he would come to give them. What they got was a man from their own hometown who was crucified by the Romans and rejected by his people. And isn't that exactly what scripture says would happen to the Messiah? John makes it clear in John chapter one, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Not only does he come to Israel, but he comes to his hometown and his own hometown did not receive him. So the people's unbelief was rooted in their familiarity. Here's the lesson for us. We must be careful to not let our familiarity with Jesus lead to inoculation. You know what it is to be inoculated? You're exposed to just enough of a virus or just enough of a disease or something like that. I'm not a doctor, so, you know. But I can Google it just like everybody else. I can also ask my wife. You're exposed to just enough of the virus so that your body learns to attack it and to kill it and defeat it so that that way, when it comes at you, your body has already built up the immunity to be able to withstand that disease or that virus, right? It's painful to realize, but we know that the very same thing can happen to Jesus. How many people do we know were exposed to Jesus and yet now they want nothing to do with Jesus. Week in and week out, their parents perhaps drugged them to church or maybe grandma did. Someone did. The bus picked them up. Somehow, some way they got here. They went through Sunday school. They learned the entire Bible, at least as much as they could. They heard the preaching, they sung the songs, they prayed the prayers, and yet now they're gone. You see, we have to be careful that our familiarity with Jesus never, ever turns into a cold formality that teaches people that the doctrine we prescribe to really doesn't do a whole lot for your heart and for your life. The best way to do that is to understand that the most important thing for us to do ever is to love Jesus. Why are you here today? Why did you understand that God's people prioritize gathering to worship God? on the Lord's day. Why did you do that? Sometimes you might be able to say, well, because I I know it's what you're supposed to do. You may say, well, it's because it's what I've always done. You may say, well, I want to set a good example for my children or my grandchildren. And those are all good answers and they're not wrong in and of themselves. But can I tell you what the best answer is every time? I'm here because I love Jesus. Because there's no better place to be. Because I love Jesus and I love his people. And because I love Jesus, I want to do everything that I possibly can to worship Jesus. I want to obey Jesus in every possible way I can imagine. I just love Jesus. And when people see that, it's so much different than when people see, well, it's because that's what Christians are supposed to do. You know what I'm talking about? Empty ritualism does not produce disciples. Love for Jesus Christ inflames the heart. Now only God can grant that. 
But you know what it's like when you see someone who you know just loves Jesus. They can't get enough of him. And you know what it's like to see them and their motivation be everywhere they go, every time they go there, I just love Jesus. Don't you think non-Christians see that too? Now, they might think it's weird, but they see it. Don't you think our children and our grandchildren see that too? So the people's unbelief was rooted in their familiarity with Jesus. We must make sure that our familiarity with Jesus always inflames our heart with greater love for Jesus and never makes that love grow cold. Thirdly, as we continue to understand their unbelief and dissect it, we see that the people's unbelief led them to take offense at him. The people's unbelief led them to take offense at him. They ask the series of questions and then they end the questions or Mark rather ends the questions with the reality of their stance toward Jesus and they took offense at him. Again, they knew him. They thought perhaps, who does this guy think he is? He has no right to talk to us that way. I changed his diaper. But Mark highlights for us something that the scripture highlights for us in the prophets and also in the New Testament. That word offense, you heard it already from Romans chapter 9 and 10. You've heard it in 1 Peter chapter 2. You've heard it throughout the prophecy of Isaiah. It's the reality that they would not receive their Messiah, but instead they would stumble over him. And that the the rock that God would build his very new city on, his very new people on, would be the rock of offense. The reality is that you can either stumble over Jesus or you can surrender to Jesus. Mark uses this word, he's already used it already, and he uses it a total of eight times, but he uses it back in chapter four, verse 17, when he's explaining the various responses to Jesus and his gospel in the parable of the soils. There he says in Mark four seventeen, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. It's translated differently, but it's the very same word. Immediately they stumble. Immediately they are scandalized is the more transliterated uh, version of the word. It's where we get our word scandal. It means to cause someone to experience anger and or shock because of what has been said or done. One commentator points out that of all the eight times that Mark uses it in his gospel, he uses it in each instance. It designates obstructions that prevent one from coming to faith and following Jesus. Their offense was not just an offense, but their offense was their demise. Peter uses this very same Word and this very same concept in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, Peter says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So their unbelief led them to take offense at Jesus. What's the lesson for us? The lesson for us is this. Unbelief is never neutral. There is no neutral position towards Jesus. You cannot simply leave him You stumble over him or you surrender to him, that's it. There is no, well, I'm just not really sure if I know who Jesus is and I think he'll be patient with me. Of course, he'll be patient with you, but the reality is that if you died in your sins, you would be dead in your sins forever. 
There is no neutral response to Jesus. You either believe or you don't believe, but unbelief does not make you safe. And so therein lies a warning for us this morning to anyone who might be in a position of unbelief, to anyone who has not yet believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now sometimes we trip over that, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we rightly think about trying to diagnose, is my belief genuine or is it a false belief? And then what do we do when we, we try to figure that out? We start to look at our works. But I think that the Bible makes it crystal clear that your salvation is not by your works. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a, there's a place and a time to analyze the belief of someone, and, and just as Jesus taught, that you will know them by their fruits. There's a time and a place for that. But if you are wrestling with whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ, let me just ask you a simple question. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus died to save you from your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the grave victorious? Do you believe that he's coming back? Do you believe that he's King of kings and Lord of lords? It's really that simple. Now that belief will take root deeper and deeper and deeper into your heart, but don't overcomplicate it. In youth ministry, that was what we dealt with all the time. Do I really believe? Well, yeah, do you believe? Well, I just don't know. I mean, I, I think that I believe. Well, there's no thinking that you believe. You believe or you don't believe. And you might believe in a way that where you still have questions and you still wrestle with doubts. That's not unbelief. That's wrestling through belief. We need to understand, though, that unbelief is not a neutral position. And this not only warns us, but it instructs us as well. It instructs us for those that we know that don't believe. just a reminder to you they're not safe they're in a dangerous position Jesus says the wrath of God remains on them and unless they believe that wrath of God will never go away for all eternity now of course we can't make someone believe but we can beg if that's what it's if that's what it takes but we can certainly cry out to the Lord who has mercy because the reality is if anyone believes, they will believe by the mercy of God. So the people's unbelief led them to take offense. It teaches us that unbelief is never neutral. Fourthly, the people's unbelief robbed them of Jesus' power. The people's unbelief robbed them of Jesus's power. Verse four through six begins to tell us Jesus's response. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. Jesus quotes what would have been to them a familiar proverb, but now for the first time in Mark, he calls himself a prophet and he acknowledges that they will not honor him as that. But notice that he paints circles around, concentric circles around it, and it gets closer and closer. First, it starts in his hometown, and then it goes to his relatives, and then it moves all the way to within his own household, which reminds us of the response of Jesus's own household back in chapter 3. Jesus' own family in Mark chapter 3 verse 21 said that he was out of his mind and when his family heard it they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now we know that some of these brothers of Jesus James and, and later called Jude they did come to believe in Jesus but at this point Jesus is highlighting the reality that the people that you think most likely to believe in him actually at this point rejected him and what did that unbelief result in not only was it dishonor toward Jesus but verse 5 says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them 
And we need to understand this in its context, right? It's not so much that Jesus could not do a mighty work, it's that Jesus would not do a mighty work. But I like the way that Mark puts it. I like what he highlights here. He highlights for us over and over again the humanity of Jesus mixed with the power of the, uh, of the Son of God, the deity of Jesus. And Mark is putting the focus not so much on what Jesus was unable to do, but more so on what the people were unwilling to do and the consequences then of their unbelief. Remember what Jesus has already done so far in the context of Mark. He calmed the storm by saying, be quiet. He delivered a demon-possessed man who had cut himself and screamed for years and terrorized the town and lived in the cemetery in a moment. He transformed his life. He healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years just by her touching him. And then he took a dead girl's hand and he raised her up from the dead and gave her life. Can the one who can do that really be neutered by the unbelief of the people? You see, Mark is teaching us the consequences of unbelief. That your unbelief robs you of the power of God. Your unbelief robs you of the transforming power that the gospel contains. What did Jesus highlight in the healing of the woman? And what did Jesus highlight in the healing of the little girl? Their faith. What did he say to the woman who touched him, who snuck up behind him and thought, if I could just touch him, this whole problem will go away. And it did. What did he say? Well, first of all, he looked for her. Where is she? I want to talk to her. But then he said to, to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And when Jairus heard the news, don't bother the teacher, your daughter's dead. When Jairus heard the news, the, that blow to his heart, Jesus turned to him and said, don't fear, only believe. You see, in the context here, Mark is highlighting for us the necessity of believing. And so when he gets to this unbelief of the town of Nazareth, he highlights for us that Jesus could not do anything because they did not believe. Which then tells the reader, you need to believe. I love how Mark writes, and, and of course, all the writers do this, but it's just so his style to interact with the one who's reading, to get you to constantly think to yourself, now why would he say it that way? And to get you to realize as if Jesus is looking you in the face, you too must believe. So their unbelief robs them of the power of God. He did heal a few people, Mark notes for us, just to make sure that we understand the unbelief of mankind does not sway the Son of God. The lesson for us is that very same lesson, that unbelief robs you of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. I have no idea how much money and time people are spending nowadays with all the self-improvement techniques, all the books that teach you how to do self-care. By the way, don't listen to anyone that claims to be Christian that tells you about taking care of yourself and focusing on time for yourself and all of those things. Jesus said, die to yourself. Just go with that. That was free also. I'm just so bothered by it. Enneagram nonsense and all that. You just, need, you just need to do you. No. No, you don't. Anyways. I don't know how much time and money and worse than that, I don't know how much hope people sink into those nonsensical ideas but I would guess it's a lot. And yet the church has the opportunity to say, Jesus changed my life. 
I read a few books and I changed a couple personal, you know, discipline goals in my life, but the reality is it's just because of Jesus. The reason I am who I am, the reason I can do what I can do is because of Jesus. That's it. What did Jesus tell the formerly demon-possessed man to go and do? Go and tell him how much, how much God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus has transformed my life and he continues to transform my life through the power of the gospel. Finally, then, the, the last, the final thing that we come to understand about the unbelief of the Nazarenes so that we can understand the unbelief of people around us is that the people's unbelief did not discourage Jesus from his mission. The people's unbelief did not discourage Jesus from his mission. Verse six says to us, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Isn't that a marvelous sentence? Jesus marveled. First of all, it shows you his humanity. He marveled at something, right? But you would expect for the word marvel and the action of marveling, you would expect that something good would follow it, wouldn't you? But what surprises the Son of God most is not the sin of mankind, but the unbelief of mankind. As he continually stretches out his arms and says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And yet man continues to say, no thanks, I'm good. I'll carry it myself. He marvels at their unbelief. Certainly Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew the condition of their hearts. We know that. But it still pained him to see their unbelief. However, it did not deter him. It did not discourage him. Because Mark finishes the verse with, and he went about among the villages teaching. What did Jesus come to do in Nazareth in the first place? To teach. What did Jesus come to do in the world in the first place, at least before his substitutionary atonement? To teach. He told us that at the end of Mark chapter 1. People were looking for him to do more signs and wonders and miracles, and he said, no, no, no. I've got to go to other places because I came here to preach. What's our lesson there? Unbelief must not discourage us from the mission. We know people who won't believe. We know people who will die in their unbelief. We know people who have died in their unbelief. But the disciple never focuses on the results. The disciple always focuses on being faithful to God. And that's the key to our motivation. This is what God has put me here to do. So regardless of what people say, regardless of what people do, I'm going to do it because I love Jesus. Unbelief must never discourage us from the mission. As we look then at the unbelief of Jesus' hometown, and we look around at the unbelief of perhaps your hometown or the town that you're living in now, you look around at the unbelief of your family members, of your friends, you scratch your head and you wonder, how could they ever go that route? We are reminded that the worst sin possible is unbelief. And we are reminded that every single one of us was in that condition at one point in our lives. And every single one of us whom Jesus has saved was saved not by our belief primarily, but because Jesus turned the lights on and we were able to believe. Because he had mercy on us. And we came to him and we trusted him and we continue to trust him with everything that we are. And we take that and we use it as fuel for the mission to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the goodness and mercy you continually pour out on us. Grant those who are in unbelief, even now, belief. That comes from you and you alone, Lord. It depends not on man, who, on the will of man or the, the power that man exerts, but on the mercy of God. And for us who believe, strengthen our belief 
and strengthen us in the mission that we have to live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.